We're going to be in Acts 27 this morning. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there uh, with me. We are committed here to what's called expositional uh, preaching or teaching, which means we go through books of the Bible. Um, If we're in a letter uh, of the New Testament, we typically go through smaller sections at a time. Uh, But when we're in the historical narratives, like Acts is, we we take larger sections. We've been taking a chapter a week. We've been in the book for about, I don't know, six months or so. As many of you know, uh, Wednesday nights make up a pretty important night for us as a church in terms of our discipleship efforts. Um, now, we gather together on Sunday mornings, of course, as we are today, as, as we see the example in Scripture and we're commanded to do in Scripture on the Lord's Day. And what we do, we, we, we worship God by song, we respond to a proclamation of God's Word, we practice those rhythms that Christ Himself commanded, the Lord's table and baptism and prayer. And so we delight in doing those things, but we also recognize that an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning is not really enough to, to, do, to allow us to do the one another's of Scripture. And there are dozens of these. It doesn't allow us the time to, to carry one another's burdens, to love one another deeply, to pray for one another, right? To, to uh, accept one another and all of that. So, so Wednesday nights are an important part of that. We have our small groups that meet throughout the week. And then Wednesday nights we have ministries for our students and adults. And a couple of Wednesdays ago, so not this last Wednesday, but the previous one, I started getting uh, messages early in the morning, texts and Facebook messages, asking the question, what are we going to do about tonight? And so I looked online, and what I discovered was, sure enough, at 6 p.m. that very evening, the forecast called for severe thunderstorms and a mild chance of tornadoes. And so I didn't want to make a decision unilaterally, and so I made a few calls, met with a few people, and we decided that we would cancel all the midweek activities you know, for that evening. Now, of course, it ended up to be the most beautiful night of the year, um, sunny and calm, but you know, this happens, uh, and so we didn't stress over it. If I've, one lear- if I've learned one thing from living in North Alabama, it's this, people don't play around when it comes to storms, and especially tornadoes. And for good reason, right? So what I've discovered is people are all over the map as it relates to storms. There's some people who are terrified by them, and they don't even want to think about an upcoming storm. There are other people who, I don't know, we might say, I might say, have an unhealthy obsession with storms. Their, their favorite uh, channel on TV is the Weather Channel. The, the World Series could be on, you know, the Super Bowl, the Macy's Day Parade, whatever it is, and they're watching Doppler radar. This is what they, they love to do. And for those people, what I've also discovered is, just from informal conversations, they really love the storm stories of the Bible. These are some of their favorite passages. And if I asked you to come up with, to think about some of the storm stories, you would surely have some that come immediately to mind. Genesis 6, right, the great flood where God uh, destroys the, the, all of the earth and except for Noah and his family. You might think of Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus calms the storm. You might think of that great passage in 1 Kings where God speaks to Elijah and he does so. He, he calls Elijah to endure this incredible storm and God speaks to Elijah by way of a whisper. Maybe you think of Jonah and the whale and the terrific storm that we see there. Um, But what you may not think about is actually the storm that the Apostle Paul endured 
in Acts chapter 27, which is where we are today. The, the, the storm that the Apostle Paul endured en route to Rome after spending two years imprisoned by the governors of Judea. And yet, this storm story is actually one of the best-known storm stories in all of history and one of the most well-studied storm stories uh, by historians. And you might think that what it really teaches us is maybe some nautical principles or, or maybe the art of sailing or maybe even the courage of the sailors or the resourcefulness of the crew, but really this is a story about the faithfulness and the grace of God, which fits very beautifully in the book of Acts, which is itself a story, historical narrative, true story about the grace of God. The book of Acts is a story of God's grace flooding out into the known world, beginning in Jerusalem, going all the way to the, quote, ends of the earth, which was what Rome was considered, as we'll see this morning. And it's a grace, by the way, that God is still pouring out through the risen Christ, by the risen Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. So remember, Acts is the beginning of a story. It's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story, the continuing work of the risen Christ by His Spirit and through His apostles. And it's a story that includes and applies to us. So uh, let me get you up to speed this morning. And by the way, we're just going to have one point this morning. I know that I'm contractually obligated as a Baptist preacher to have three points. Um, but just one point this morning, I'll give you about two-thirds of the way into this message. When we last saw Paul... He was standing on trial uh, before the governor Festus and then King Agrippa who had joined him in, in travel. This is after two years of prison. And because Paul didn't really think he was getting anywhere, he didn't feel like he was making very much progress in his argumentation, he appeals to the Caesar. Well, this was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And so Festus, the governor, says to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. And so that means that Paul will be sent to Rome by boat where he will make his case to, the Nero, to Nero, the emperor of Rome. So Acts 27, um, let me start by reading verses 1 through 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we, remember this is Luke, uh, Paul, maybe another uh, traveling companion or two, that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So I want to pause for just a moment. For, for the duration of this trip to Rome, Paul is handed over to this centurion by the name of Julius. Um, he would be solely responsible, Julius would, to make sure that Paul was delivered to the Caesar. Now, Rome was a long way from Caesarea. It took at least five weeks to get there by boat, and that was if the weather cooperated. So this was no easy journey. Paul and these prisoners, as we just read, they're just one day, one day into their weeks-long journey. They've only traveled about 70 miles 
when they make their first stop in Sidon, and incredibly, this is pretty remarkable, incredibly, Julius allows Paul to leave to go see his friends. There was a Christian church in Sidon, uh, which had grown actually after Stephen was martyred, and it was to that church, or those friends, Paul calls them, uh, that Julius let Paul go. And I say it was incredible that he would let Paul go, um, because Julius was no, under no obligation to let Paul leave and see his friends. In fact, he was a centurion, which means he was under a hundred men, a century, hundred men, and uh, he was a person of great authority, but he was a, also a person under great authority, a person under great responsibility. And this was a huge deal that Paul, that Julius would see to it that Paul would make it to Rome. And so he's actually taking a significant risk here to let Paul go. I've got a friend who's a, uh, is a sheriff, works in the sheriff's department at, in Orange County, California, and his job is to transport prisoners from Orange County, California, which if you know anything about California, Southern California, up to Northern California, all the way uh, sometimes to San Quentin, which if you are a Johnny Cash fan, and how could you not be? Uh, you know about San Quentin, right? He's written about San Quentin. He was never in San Quentin, but wrote as, a, as though he was a prisoner there. So my friend will transport prisoners from Orange County to as far north as San Quentin. And he, says, he said to me once, you would not believe, and maybe you would, the tricks and the tactics that these prisoners will employ as a way to sort of get, gain their freedom, to get free, to be released from bondage. And he said it almost always has something to do with an urgent need to use the restroom. This is the way it always works, he said. And then they will say, hey, listen, you know, in order for me to use the restroom, uh, I need to be uncuffed, you know. And so they go about this, this plot, this scheme, and you know, he's been doing it long enough that he, you know, he doesn't give in to it. But he said there's a lot of pressure. Sometimes they'll try to rock the bus on the way. They'll do anything they can to escape. The stress is tremendous to get these prisoners to their destination. Well, Julius experienced that same level of stress. In fact, this was such a big deal, this was such an important matter, that if a Roman centurion allowed a prisoner to escape, then the centurion would be subjected to the punishment that that prisoner was due to receive. So this is, again, this is an incredible thing that Julius would let Paul go to see his friends. It's fair to say this is a grace of God. True friendship in the ancient world was a huge deal. Of course, it is still a huge deal, but back then, friends literally depended on each other. Friends grieved with one another, they helped one another, they looked out for one another, and if you were a prisoner, you really needed your friends because provisions like meals were not a guarantee. If you're going to eat, have proper clothing and supplies, you needed the help of your friends. And Julius lets Paul go to see his friends. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, I think there's only really one explanation. By his grace, God had sort of gone ahead, so to speak, and softened Julius's heart. Later, after the ship, after the ship crashes into a reef and is run aground, we'll see in just a few minutes, the soldiers hatch a plan to kill Paul and all the prisoners, and Julius comes in, and he comes to Paul's rescue again. Here's one evidence of grace, God's grace from this passage. And it's not the main point of the section, but I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention it. 
Sometimes God softens the heart of our adversaries as a way to remind us of his kindness. Have you ever had somebody who was just against you? And, and maybe you couldn't even really understand why. Like, why is this person so against me? Why does this person want to bring me down? Why is this person always criticizing? And then have you noticed that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God softens their heart, and then all of a sudden they begin showing kindness to you and respecting you and honoring you. And you think, well, what's happened here? This is a grace of God. There was an older gentleman in his late 70s and years ago, and fairly new in ministry, and this guy was a former pastor for many years. In fact, by his own account, by his own admission, he was a failed church planner. That's kind of how he referred to himself. And, but he knew Greek and Hebrew, was well-studied, had multiple advanced degrees. And for whatever reason, you know, I was probably 38 or 39 at the time, he, he took a disliking to me. I, I don't know why. But he would, get all, he would just criticize. And I'd get these mean-spirited, you know, caustic emails from him. So finally I said, I said man, we, we need to meet. And so we, he came into my office, and, and I said to him, I said, Cletus, that wasn't his real name, but I don't know anybody named Cletus, so I'm going to use that. I said, Cletus, here's what I don't understand. And he was talking to me about the use of some vav consecutive in the Hebrew language. It was about as minuscule as you could get. And I said, here's what I don't understand. The only time I ever hear from you is criticism. The only time I ever hear anything from you, it's a complaint, a negative word. I said, I've never once heard any. You've never sent me anything positive. You've never, and, and I don't need this necessarily because of the way God has wired me, but you've never thanked me for anything. All you've ever said to me has been negative. And I couldn't believe his response. This guy's 78, 79 years old. He paused for what seemed like an eternity. And he looked up at me and he said, You know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I want to seek your forgiveness. And I'm going to make sure that from now on, when you hear from me, it's going to be more mixed reviews. I, I, I would have preferred something a little more glowing, but it's going to be more mixed reviews. I'm not just going to tell you the bad stuff. I'm going to give you some good stuff. And I was like, you know, and I thought to myself, man, I approached this meeting with very little faith, frankly, because I never expected that response from him. Sometimes God softens the hearts of those who are against us as a way to show us his kindness. Now look at verses 4 through 10. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will, with, will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So there's a ship change in Myra, just like 
you know, if you're traveling from Huntsville to a major city, you have to get off one plane often and, you know, sort of disembark and get on another plane. This is what these prisoners were forced to do, exit one vessel and get on another. And what they get on is an Egyptian grain ship. Now, keep in mind, these weren't cruise ships, okay? The Royal Caribbean wasn't around then. There were no uh, tiki bars or putt-putt golf courses or uh, zip lines on these ships. So there's barely enough room to sit. You had the cargo, and then you had the passengers, in this case 200-plus, crowded in wherever they could go. And because these ships were, were grain ships, they were designed to stay near the coastland, not venture out into the open sea. Now, I'm not saying they were flimsy boats. They weren't flimsy boats, but they were not built for terrible storms. In fact, once you got past into late October, basically, everybody kind of shut down and, and decided not to sail the Mediterranean Sea because it was a fool's errand to try to make it during those winter months. Well, here it is according to Paul in verse 9, after the fast, the fast was a reference to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day on which Jews fasted as a way to atone for their sins. And that year, so it's probably 59 or 60, that year the fast took place the first week of October. So that meant that Paul and his traveling companions were already into mid-October, which meant that they would be out to sea when everybody else had already begun shutting things down. And so a decision that they have to make is, do we settle down in fair havens, or do we press on and just sort of brave the elements and hope for the best? Now, fair havens sounds like a nice place by the name, right? Fair havens sounds like a place to camp out, but it was a very small place, a very small port city, and these soldiers were saying, all right, this place may be okay for the preacher, but it's not going to be all right for us. We need, we need some more activity. We need a bigger place. And so they say, you know, we've got to press on. But Paul, being not just well-educated, but also a very experienced sea traveler, remember, he's the tail end of his third missionary trip, and a lot of that's been done by sea, he tells the crew, he says, look, this is not smart. This is not a good way to go. We can't do this without losing our cargo and maybe our own lives. But the centurion, who has been very kind to Paul thus far, he doesn't listen to Paul, but instead he listens to the captain, the ship, the owner, and determines to press on, and that's when everything goes off the rails. Look at verses 13 uh, through 19. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon... A tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave uh, way to it and were driven along. Running along the lee of a small island uh, called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. It's talking about the, the, what we might call the lifeboat. After hoisting it up, they, so Luke here now tr- goes from we to they, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground uh, on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So this is the stuff that movies are made of, right? This is the stuff that CGI and computer graphics can really, could really have a field day with. The Northeaster is a devastating type of storm. It's, um, it's kind of a 
combo hybrid word in Greek, and it refers to a typhoon-like storm. You might even think, uh, I think rightly think of a hurricane. And it was because the winds had come down from, from Mount Ida uh, to the northeast, and they kept driving the, shri- the ship away from the destination. So they wanted to sail north along the shoreline, but what happened is the wind was driving them southwest into the heart of the sea. And not only does this this typhoon storm sort of push them away from the coast, but it threatened to completely submerge the boat altogether. So what do they do? They take desperate measures. They shorten the sail and bring up the lifeboat, verse 16, so that it's on board the ship, and they use cables to kind of undergird to support the boat so that it's not torn apart. And then after a day, they decide to jettison the cargo, verse 19. This is the cargo that they were paid to transport, so you can see just how desperate things were. One by one, they start to get rid of the cargo, but they're still, you know, things are still looking very ominous, so they start to throw over the ship's tackle. Verse 19, this is a reference to all the spare gear and the mainsail. So they are in absolute crisis mode here. They think they're going to die. And as if that wasn't enough, the storm was so bad that as they drifted out to sea, uncontrollably, They couldn't see anything because of total blackness of the storm. Look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach summarizes their situation very bluntly. He says, without the stars and sun, they have no way of determining their, their location, no gear, no sun, no stars, and no hope. Now, I can hardly imagine how terrifying this must have been. I've been on some boats in rough waters. I even uh, sailed a 12-hour trip uh, in the middle of the night down the Amazon River during a storm, and uh, I was all in a hammock, you know, with a mosquito net over me in a hammock designed for somebody eight inches shorter than I am. So it was a very uncomfortable trip, but I didn't really think I was going to die at any moment, really. I've been, in some, I've, been, I've been uneasy, I've been queasy, I've been nauseated, but I've never thought that my life was over. But here they are, they're totally hopeless and preparing to die, bracing themselves at any moment for their ship to crash into the rocks, tossing them overboard to death, either, either by drowning or by a bone-crushing landing on a boulder. They can't even eat. They're so anxious. We'll hear later in the chapter. They are absolutely beside themselves. Luke, the author of Acts, who was a participant in all this, paints a haunting and a bleak picture. But what happens next? God shows up via a divine messenger. Look at verses 21 and following. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I don't know, this is kind of encouraging to me. You know, even the Apostle Paul resorts to the, I told you so. Men, you should have listened to me. I told you so. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those 
who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So the crew, you know, we try to put ourselves in their their shoes. It's very difficult to do. The crew is at their absolute lowest point. They are, they are preparing to die. They, they believe they're going to die. And Paul stands up among them. He says to them, basically, I told you so. And then he says, if you'd, not li- if you'd listen to me and not set sail from Crete, we wouldn't be in this mess. But even though you didn't listen, you were stubborn, you were obstinate, you were recalcitrant, even though you didn't listen, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship sent an angel and told me that not one of us would die. And we're going to lose the boat, so get ready for that. But not a single passenger on board will be lost with it. They would actually lose the boat. The rest of the chapter details their slow and uncontrollable crash into a reef. But even though the people on board anticipate the inevitable, they know they can't stop. You know, if you've ever been on a ship that's drifting, you can't control it. They can't stop what's happening Incredibly, they regain their appetite. They break bread together. Paul gives thanks to God, even though they don't see evidence of their immediate safety. And then Paul says to them in verse uh, 34, he says, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged... And ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. The danger is not over, but they're trusting in what God has said. And of course, remember, the great majority of these men, minus two or three, okay, four or five, um, they they were not believers in the God of Israel. They were not worshipers of the God of Israel. They were worshipers of all the pagan gods of the Mediterranean world. And yet they take confidence in the God of Israel, the God that Paul says he belongs to and worship. Now, we have to ask the question, as we do when we look at any passage in the Scripture, why would Luke include this Why all the nautical details? Why all the stuff about the ships? Why would Luke include this in the book of Acts? And then, of course, the better and most pressing question is, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to write it? What does God intend to teach us from this incredible narrative? And I think there's a lot we can learn. I suppose there's much we can learn. But I do think there's a singular purpose for this story. And that's to show us the lengths to which God will go to sovereignly bring His people to the destination He has ordained for them. Let me summarize summarize it this way. This will be our single point today. There is no circumstance, power, or person that can prevent us from getting to where God has determined to bring us. Have, not, have we not seen this throughout the book of Acts over and over again? God says, I want you to go there. And Paul says, how am I going to get there? Very, very beginning where, where Jesus converts Paul, he appears to Paul, and he says, I want you to go to Damascus. And then Paul is blinded. He can't see a thing, and yet he's led by the hand, so to speak. God delivers him into that city. It happens throughout this book. 
Well, remember what God says to Paul in Romans or Acts 23, rather. When Paul had been taken into custody in Judea two years before all this, the Lord promised Paul this, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul, God says to Paul, you have to bear witness of me in Rome. Now, surely Paul thought that he would go as a respected missionary and not as a prisoner. Surely Paul thought that the journey there would be a lot easier and a lot less dramatic than it ended up being. But God had other plans for Paul, and at the heart of God's plan was to deliver Paul to the destination that God had already determined Paul to go. And God would not allow anything from heaven above, so to speak, to prevent Paul from getting there. Now think about what Paul and his fellow travelers have been through at this point. Let me just let me put it in a list for you. Some of you are like me, you like lists. Look at this. A loss of direction. Negligible progress. You know, if you were in these boats, if the sailing conditions were right, you could sometimes make it five or six miles per hour. They weren't going, they were going the opposite direction. They were going in reverse. Unforeseen circumstances, terrifying elements internal disagreements, a lack of necessities, emotional angst. Look at that list. Have you experienced any of these recently? Have you experienced negligible progress in your life? Have you experienced a a loss, a lack of direction? Have you experienced the family level, small group level, broader family level, a lack or an internal disagreements, emotional angst. We're in a very difficult time right now as a country, as a church. I'm speaking of the broader church. A friend of mine said it beautifully the other day. He said, I feel like I'm in a fog. I can see somewhat clearly behind me, but I have no idea what lies ahead. We have folks in our church who don't know if they'll have a job in two months. We have members who don't know where they'll be, where they'll be living six months from now. We have folks here who are in marriages that seem to be touch and go, just barely hanging on. We have folks who don't know where their, spiritual, where their children will end up spiritually or geographically, and that plagues them. We have members who are awaiting test results for a health concern that nobody can seem to get under control. And frankly, none of us knows what tomorrow will hold. Or as Calvin says, what calamity may immediately befall us. We don't know. But what this story teaches us is that God will bring you to the place that He has ordained for you. In His sovereignty, He has you right where He wants you at this moment. And He has a place that He's taking you. When we can't see where we're going and everything around us is unclear and, and metaphorically speaking, the water is, is, is coming into the boat and we don't know if it's going to stay afloat, God has promised us that He will bring us to the place that He has for us. God has a plan for you. If you're in Christ, God has a plan for you and it's for your good. That's true immediately and eschatologically. It's true vocationally, relationally, geographically, and spiritually. 
God has a plan for you, and it's for your good. Now, please hear me. This is not a promise of smooth sailing, calm waters, or health and wealth. Certainly not. But a promise that God is in control. He's sovereign over even the elements of nature. He's sovereign over our government. He's sovereign over your boss. He's sovereign over your health, and he's sovereign over your future. What he has for you may not be easy. It may seem to you like you are bound for the nearest iceberg. But his ultimate plan for, your, for you is good. You say, well, how do you know that? How can you be sure that God's plan for me is ultimately for my good? I wrestle with that all, all week and try to see, how do I see that from this passage? And here's what I believe the Lord revealed to me. And I was so grateful for it. This storm story of Acts 27 is a little microcosmic scene in a much, much bigger story, a story that illustrates more clearly than ever that God sovereignly brings His people to a place that He has in store for them. We might call the bigger story the storm story of human existence. See, mankind was created to glorify and enjoy God forever. But shortly into the existence of humanity, the first and only humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They determined that what God had given them was not good enough. In fact, actually believed that God himself wasn't good. They determined that they wanted the right to determine what's right and wrong on their own. And so they revolted against God, disobeyed his commands, and that sent the world into the great storm of sin, disease, and death. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, banished from God's presence, and every person ever born after them, which includes every person ever born, would be born separated from God. From the moment we enter the world, we enter demanding our own freedom from God's authority. We were born with the disease of sin inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We were born unwilling and unable to come to God, unwilling and unable to live holy lives. Our motives are impure, our thoughts are selfish, our actions are self-serving, and our desires are twisted. We are born under the curse of God with no hope to shed that curse. But God... Here's that grace again. Because God loved the world, He sent His Son into the storm of human existence, into the sin-cursed world of pain and trouble and sickness and death. God sent His Son, Jesus, to live the life we were created to live, to perfectly obey all of God's commands in thought, word, and deed, and to die the death that we deserve because of our personal revolt against God. So that we, just like the crew, the members of this ship to Rome, we who were in darkness with no hope whatsoever and bound for destruction could be once for all delivered. Now, God didn't have to send His Son. He could have left us alone to live and die under His wrath and to suffer eternal damnation. But before He even created the world, the book of Ephesians tells us, God determined by His mercy and according to his infinite wisdom, to save some. Undeserving, rebellious, self-glorifying people. 
God determined to enable some to turn to Him in repentant faith. And as they turn to Him in faith, by the very faith that He provides, God saves them. He brings them to Himself, He forgives their sins, and He makes them new. And He promises to keep those close to Himself until He will deliver them to the place that He has prepared for them where they will live with Him for all eternity. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. If, I, if it was not true, I wouldn't say this to you. But I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to go, and then I'm going to receive you to be with me where you will live forever with me. The same Apostle Paul says in a different letter, He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. So if you're in Christ this morning, if you put your faith in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, believed on Jesus, there are a lot of things that, that may very well change for you even sooner than you would like. Your job may change. Your health situation may change. Your kids may move cross-country. Your financial status may go belly up. But one thing you can count on is this. God will bring you to the place that He has in store for you. And that is a place of endless joy, a place where you will be with Him forever. And these are not just benefits for someday in the future. Even now, He has promised to be with you, to sustain you, to strengthen you, and to give you peace. And He will never, ever let you go. Maybe you're wondering, what if I'm not one of the ones that God determined before the world was made? That's not for you to worry about. What God is calling you to do is to repent and believe. And the Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. They will never be put to shame. What God is calling you to do is to believe, to turn to Jesus in faith. If you do, you will be received. You will be forgiven and made new. God will be your father and you will be his son or daughter. And all the blessings that we talked about will be yours both now and forever. And this you can count on because God never changes. God never changes. This Jesus that God sent to rescue us from our sinful condition, to deliver us and save us as we were bound for destruction, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, and He has made a way for you to belong to the Father. Let's pray and then sing about that unchanging Jesus together. Father in heaven, Will you help us to believe it? We struggle. We struggle to believe that your plans for us are good. We struggle to believe that you're sovereign over every single thing. And as Spurgeon said, not even a a wave dances in the sun, not even a wave crashes into the side of a boat apart from the design and sovereignty of God. But it's hard for us to understand it. Father, help us. Be gracious to us. Help us to believe that you, in fact, are the unchanging God. The God that that you tell us in the Scriptures, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing. The God in whom there is no no darkness, only light. The God who is perfect in all His ways. Will you please help us to receive it now, in Christ's name. Amen.